0: questions on Genesis 15. Yes. Did God kill Jesus? did God, <laughs> did God kill Jesus? Isaiah 53:10. Isaiah 53:10 answers that. 53 verse 10. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And that grief is grief unto death because he's a guilt offering. And in verse 12, he poured out himself to death. So God was pleased to put Christ to death.
1: So
0: God killed and, well, it depends on what all you mean by it. Was the father the one who deliberately put to death his son? Yes, if that's what you're asking. And that's not the only place. It says that in other places in Scripture. <coughs> Um, for example, um, uh, First uh, Isaiah 53, verse 10 says it there, and also Acts chapter 4, Acts chapter 4 and verse 28. Acts 4,
2: 28.
0: To do, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They put him to death to do whatever God's hand and God's purpose predestined to occur on Christ or in reference to Christ. Did the
2: Roman
0: soldiers kill him or did God kill him? Both did. They both did. Did the Romans kill him? In Acts four twenty seven, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles. And the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Amen. So all they, all of them, did it, and God did it. Right. Next.
3: What was the second scripture you referenced after Isaiah?
0: Isaiah fifty-three ten. Yeah. And Acts four twenty-seven to twenty-eight. Four twenty-seven to twenty-eight. And if you're writing scriptures like that, do also Acts two twenty-two to twenty-four, two twenty-two to twenty-four, which says the same as Acts four. And actually, if we're talking about who's responsible for the death of Christ, we could also say Christ is responsible.
4: Yes.
0: Christ, because John ten, John ten. 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. When he says, No one has taken it away from me, he's meaning it's not as though the people, the wicked people, are out of control, and God doesn't know what he's doing, and Christ doesn't know what he's doing. No. They all know what they're doing. God knows what he's doing. God the Father knows. Christ knows. The people themselves, they're acting based on sin and evil intentions. That's why they're doing it. And, and one more individual we can mention is Judas. It says um, the rulers and the, and the Jews and the Gentiles, the peoples of Israel. But if we're going to be more specific... Judas Iscariot was responsible because he betrayed him. And if we're going to be more specific, we could say the 11 disciples were responsible because they fled. Uh, we could say we are all responsible yes. because he, he bore our sin, right. and so we are responsible for his death.
5: Right.
0: Uh, we could say Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests, they were responsible because they, they ordered for his execution. Caiaphas, and Annas, so on. So there's a sense in which everyone was responsible, yeah. but not guilty. The ones who are not guilty are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. They're never guilty. No. no. I
2: kill. I make a lot.
0: Yes? <clears throat> yes? You have a question? I mean, I'm sorry about yes. Yes. So
5: what is the, and I know that these, uh, these commentators, these uh, theologians, so-called of our day and in ages past, that seem to make a distinction between the Old Testament dispensation and the New Testament dispensation, what is their intention in doing so? What is their intention in saying that Abraham's salvation was based on works Versus ours, is based on life. I mean, I know it's the evil one's intention just to cause uh, deception and confusion. Um, but, you know, so-called famous theologians today, seminaries that teach such that there's a difference between the... What is the intention in that? I, I would think that they'd be convicted trying to insinuate that God has changed, so to speak, the way he operated salvifically uh, in times past versus, you know, this current dispensation. What's the purpose?
0: What are their intentions? It's several intentions. And sometimes it's more than another depending on who we're talking about. Um, Some of them want to believe in works. They want to believe in works. Salvation by works. And... They might say faith and works, faith in Christ and works, or just faith generally and works, whatever mixture. They want to add works to the picture. They want to add that to the potion, the poisonous potion. It's always got works involved. That's what they want to do. And they want to do that not just for the Jews, so that the Jews before Christ, they could be saved without believing in Christ because it was based on Works Or faith plus works. Faith in God, not faith in Christ. Faith in God plus works. But not faith in Christ and Christ alone. They want to depend on works, their own works. For the Jews, but also they want to depend on works for themselves now in this current day and age, for anybody. Because if you say there's only one gospel and that from Adam until the end of the world, anyone who is ever saved has to put faith in in the death and resurrection of Christ, for his forgiveness of sins and eternal life. If you say that, you have have, um, uh, minimized the number of people who get to heaven dramatically. Yeah. You have minimized it dramatically. You have pampered the pride of men because it's by works, but you've also restricted the number of people who actually get to heaven. When I say the number of people, the number of people in percentage... Because we do know Revelation :9 or in Genesis 15:5, it will be innumerable like the stars of heaven. Those who are in heaven will be uncountable, which no one can count. So the number of people in quantity will be a lot. But what bothers people is that the percentage of people who have ever lived, compared to those who are actually saved, is a, a small gate is a narrow way, and it is a remnant. That's what really bothers them. And they think that they are more loving and kind and gracious than God because their way of salvation gets more people into heaven. And even Muslims and Hindus and atheists, they, they, believe, they say they believe in free will, but they force atheists to get to heaven. Okay, So that they say that these kinds of people, based on the, the goodness, the way that they live their life, or according to the religion in which they were born, like the Buddhists in in, uh, East Asia, that they will get to heaven just based on the the faithfulness that they have in works towards their own religion. They don't need to believe in Christ. That's where they're also headed, in that direction. They want more people in percentage saved than the Bible grants. Yeah. Yeah.
5: Yeah, Because I I know that uh, you have your... Four-point Armenians that are founded upon work salvation, but you but then you have Baptistic theologians that say they embrace all five points, that believe in in true grace, and I couldn't understand. Well, they don't believe in works like Pentecostals or Church of Christ or all these others, and you know, they're Baptistic. Then why would they promote such a difference between all times, but this explains it right here. It's the numbers.
0: It's the numbers. Yeah. It's the numbers. They they don't want to, oh, and then they don't want to believe in the predestination of God. Because if it depends on our works, then it's us and our goodness and what we can muster up and it doesn't depend on God. They don't want to depend on God's predestination, His sovereign will. They want to depend on their will. If it de- if it depends on God's sovereign predestinarian will, then it can't be because of me. It has to be, we have to be saved because of Him. So, so all, all of these in measure, are interrelated. These are the fundamental reasons.
5: Yes, it's driven and measured also by pride and self-glory, taking some credit, even if it's a minute amount yeah. in my salvation.
0: Yeah, actually, they present themselves as saying it's just a minute amount. It's just a little bit. Yeah. That they might say, well, it's 99.9% God and then 0.01% me, so it's not very much. It's very, 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 very minute. But actually, guess what? It's not minute. Right. They, they, they are talking like a slick salesman saying it's minute Amen. when it's not. Do you know why? Because it's the trigger and makes the whole difference in their theology yes, yes. whether they get to heaven or go to hell. So it's not minute, it's the most powerful part of the 100%. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> right.
5: right. Yes,
0: over here.
1: In uh, Genesis 15 7, God reminds uh, Abram that he's the one that brought him out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to <coughs> inherit this land. Yes. And when you, when you compare that to Hebrews chapter 11, um, in the writer's comparison but starting at verse 8 he says that by faith Abraham was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance obeyed and he went out not knowing where whither he went but by faith he sojourned in the land of promise in a strange country dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob heirs with him of the same promise For he looked for a city. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob all looked for the city which has foundation whose builder and maker is God. My question is, when when we see those promises recurring in Scripture and they they include the heathen, include us redeemed, um, can we also make the same claim to that city whose maker and builder is God
0: yes okay Genesis fifteen seven, God brought him out of Ur to give him Canaan and when he went to Canaan it was for the purpose of looking for the city which has foundations whose architect and builder is God Hebrews 11 verse 10 says so the question is does that apply also to us and are, are we to look for that and to anticipate that yes Hebrews chapter 12 Hebrews chapter 12 he says 12:22 but you have come to mount zion and to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem and to myriads of angels to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to god the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. 22, Mount Zion, heavenly Jerusalem. 23, enrolled in heaven, righteous men made perfect. We also come to that. He's speaking of our predecessors, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and everyone, and us. And then 13, chapter 13. 13, 13. 13.13, 13, Hence, let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Amen. This also goes back to what we just read in Romans 4.23-25, to which says, now it was not for his sake alone that it was written that it shall be reckoned, but for our sakes also it was written. We read about Abraham not to end with Abraham but to end with us and also all of the number of people that God will save and will go to heaven. We're all supposed to be looking for the eternal city. Not, not here. Who's next?
5: Just a quick question about When God says, when he came to visit Abraham at the tent, and you you brought it up, how men could say, well, see, here's a good example that God is not omniscient, or he's not omnipresent. He actually would need to come down to Sodom and Gomorrah and see with his own eyes if it's true. And then the Lord goes on to say, and if it's so...
0: I will know. Yeah. If it's so, I will know. Yeah. Yes. As
5: though he did not know omniscient.
0: Yes. Okay. Um, how are we to understand it? Is there a question?
5: Well, if, if there's an uh, opposer to the doctrines that we embrace concerning his omniscience and omnipresence, um, uh, how would we explain that to them? Yes. How we? We, would... we understand those things. We understand that God is ubiquitous. Uh, he doesn't need to be somewhere to know.
0: Yes. Yeah. So why does it say that? And why did He do that? Why did he come?
5: Why did he say it?
0: Yeah, okay. Since we're talking about Genesis, um, Genesis forty nine twenty four. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. Why does it say that? That's a reference to God, right, or Christ? Stone and shepherd. Does that mean that God is a stone? A literal stone. Does that mean that God is a shepherd? A literal shepherd. And does he have a hundred sheep in the flock? How many does he have in the flock? Is he a literal shepherd? No. no. So, so these are metaphors speaking in human ways, in human terms, so that we can understand something that God's saying or doing. Something about himself, something about us, something about what he's about to do. That's why it's there. These are Anthropomorphisms, forms of uh, God speaking in human ways. And there's another, um, when he expresses emotions too, uh, anthropopopisms means the the emotions that we have, God sometimes expresses those to enable us to understand what God thinks of something. He will rejoice over you with song, right? When it says that in Zephaniah 3.17, then it's not meaning that um, God has happy and sad days, as though he has uh, emotional ups and downs. It's not like that. It's just saying that he is pleased with our redemption. That's all. Question?
3: I have to wonder if that, the question I just asked, if God would come down, because Abram was pleading with God, if that was not really a statement to reassure Abram, almost like that, okay, I'm going to take another, you know, in in Abram's fleshly man's ability come down to take a look. You know, almost to encourage and satisfy the pleas of Abram.
0: Yeah, well, he's about to plead with God, it says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then they have the dialogue, and he petitions God to deliver Sodom. Yeah, but, but right before, it, it is in the same context, but it is to show to Abraham and, uh, and to us that God investigates everything thoroughly because he's a righteous judge. Which point comes up in verse 25, Far be it from you to do such a thing to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? That's an aspect of his judgment. He investigates everything thoroughly. So he doesn't practically in his own, God's own mind investigate everything thoroughly but revelationally he does. In relationship to us he does in that he's telling us we should never presume that God is ignorant and that God is unjust or unloving. We should never say or even have that thought. Right. And he's illustrating that he does check everything by saying it and doing it like this. That's what it is. It's cute. Does God
4: have
1: feathers?
0: Does God have feathers? you have a verse already open for that? Um, in
2: the psalm it says that I will see.
0: Yeah, okay. It says in Psalm thirty-six, seven: "How precious is your loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings." But God is not a bird. Right. He's not a bird. (laughs) Okay. That was just. Yeah, that's in reference to the same. Yeah.
4: Dr. Harris, would you say, too, with your expression and all of that, it, it again, it's, it's a kindness of God to speak to us in terms that we can understand, like, shout your wings, <clears throat> no you know, yes. even relenting, you know, investigating. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a kindness of God. Mm-hmm. But then what man does is we turn this kindness of God and trying mm-hmm. to reveal himself to us in ways of understanding. And we twist it and see. See, yeah. God really isn't all that great mm. when all His language, He's just describing the, His kindness, His mercy. Yeah. And we take that and go, yes. see, He's not that great. He can yes. change His mind. Or, yes. He doesn't know everything. Or, yes.
0: So it's meant, <laughs> they, they raise these objections to diminish the goodness of God, the justice of God, the holiness of God, the omniscience of God, the omnipotence of God, whatever, they're trying to bring God down lower. And they, when they do that, they make him an idol.
4: Because mm-hmm. God is not obligated to explain himself to us. Yes. No yes. And yet he does. Yes. Yeah. So so it's so just like, personal example, example. Yeah, of yeah, we go back. Oh, well. See? It's
3: people
4: point, point, uh,
5: to God uh, Yes, so people. Yeah. See God. yeah. I'm for yeah. God because I can't speak.
0: Yeah.
4: That's a great Right. He gets to scoot
0: down. Yes. They want to bring God down to their level so that they don't have to honor him with the on the due honor that is Well, to they, begin. well
3: they can get by with things they think they, they can, can get it. by with sin. Yeah.
0: They can live exactly in, in what they want. They want sin.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay. Is that theology that we're discussing right now that we haven't <laughs> talked relative to uh the uh, Old Testament law and, and, and New Testament by grace, salvation, is that still taught? And in, in I believe and know that you went to Baptist uh, uh, seminaries and teach Is that still?
0: Oh, yes. It? Yes. Is this distinction between Old Testament law and New Testament grace in the wrong way, as we described it being in the wrong way, unbiblical way, is that still being taught? Yes, it's taught everywhere. It's taught everywhere, in, even in Baptist seminaries. Even in other evangelical seminaries. Even in Presbyterian seminaries. It's taught everywhere. Everywhere. And this will never leave us. It will never leave us because back to that original question, what would motivate people to talk this way or to believe this way? Because they want to elevate themselves by works. They want to diminish God and God's omnipotence and predestinarian work in salvation. And they don't want to believe that few people get to heaven, especially they want their own relatives or their own parents or, or their own children to right. be in heaven, so they make it wider than the Bible makes it wider. That's why they're doing it. Um, and it is very, very prevalent in academia. It's everywhere. Not just academia, but in mega churches, it's, it's prevalent everywhere. Even in small churches, it's big.
2: Is that not an attribute of the
1: team?
0: Total depravity, yeah. That, that man, man will go to whatever extent to justify himself wrongly, yeah, that shows total depravity, yeah.
2: How common, the view that you've given, which is the right interpretation, uh, how common is this today in like a seminary setting? How many professors would hold to that?
0: How many professors would hold to it the way that I just said it And as forthrightly and straightforwardly and dogmatically as I've said it, probably two and a half professors in the the United States. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of the well, You'll have more than two and a half. You, You might have 22 and a half that say that they believe it. They might say that they believe it. But actually teaching it as though it is a big deal and there's no way to compromise on this, I would say probably two and a half.
2: And then, could you mention as well, and maybe even read that quote you read to me this week, like the, reform, the Reformers, the theology coming out of that, uh, that this, what what you're teaching is consistent with, um, with what was coming out of the Reformation, that oh, this is Reformed theology, you know, yes. a part of it. <coughs>
0: yes. Yes. Um, i have I have here a packet, and you're welcome to have a copy of this packet. We have a few extras, um, only a handful of them, but we can make more, and we can refer you to the sources here. but this packet was actually compiled and, and made a few years ago when in church that th- there were many dispensationalists and and some liberals in the church and they were kicking and screaming against these teachings. Really, they were kicking and screaming against these teachings, as though the teachers and I was one of them and Jerry was the other. As though we were crazy men, madmen. <laughs> as, as though we were teaching a new doctrine. As though we were Godzilla, just here, here here to wreck the city. You know, that's that's the mentality they had of us. And they treated us as though we had a plague. Wow. Kept us at a distance. Everything they had. A sour look on their face whenever they heard this. And and in fact, when this men's Bible study first started, uh, I might have the exact date wrong, but about January 2014, when it first started, some of the men in this group were as I just described. Some of them in this group were as I just described. So I kept telling Jerry that this is not new. And this is old. And these issues have been as old as the time of the apostles. Because right after the time of the apostles, in about A.D. 150, there was a heretic named Marcion. Marcion. He wasn't the first one to believe like this, but he was one of the first ones that made a big deal about it, a big splash contradicting the Bible. And so this false doctrine is known as Marcionism because of him. And he's the one that said... Uh, that we need to make these distinctions between the Testaments, between the ways of salvation, between the who the God, God is of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. Yeah, he made all kinds of distinctions, and he had a chopped up Bible. He had an edited version of Luke, and he had 10 of the letters of Paul, and everything else in his Bible he threw in the trash can. Everything else he got rid of. And that's all he had. And he had... Different gods, different ways of salvation. Grace means this there, but works means that there. Everything was different. Everything. Completely. Now, that most extreme position, the average church today, you don't have people actually saying it and teaching and saying, I'm a Marcionite. No one will say that. But practically speaking, they adopt many, if not most, or all of what his teachings are. They actually do. In ignorance, not knowing that 2,000 years ago the church branded him as a heretic, because he was. So, it's been long believed. Now, they were recovered in the Middle Ages, early Middle Ages. A lot of the pastors and theologians believed just like I said. But then in the uh, late Middle Ages, before the Reformation, there was a time when it wasn't being taught. And then in the time of the Reformation, <coughs> with Martin Luther and John Calvin and others, they... Taught, recovered these and were teaching them, and that's how it spread. When the United States or the colonies of the United States first existed, the early settlers believed this. The Pilgrims, the Puritans, they all believed this. It was only later, especially around the 1800s until today, the last 200 years, when these teachings have been undermined in American Christianity. That's when they've been undermined. So, this packet has numerous quotes from ancient authors and confessions of faith and catechisms that show that they all believe what I just said. What, what we just studied for the last couple of hours. <clears throat> it was so shocking to me
3: because this, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the you know, growth in... And seeking and, and realization, my wife and I, last three, four, four years ago, a uh, progressive growth that, that so much of the teaching of the mainstream is it, it's wrong. Whether it's the battle of pride—is this pride, Lord? Is this my arrogance? Is this my sin? This thinking—how could I feel that this is wrong, even though I'm not truly a Bible scholar? But in my soul, I, I know that, I know that, I know that that can't be right. And, uh, and, and then seeking, as I shared with you last week, and then, you know, uh, basically discovering the teachings of, you know, of the Reformation, or MacArthur's, and, and, and people like that. Uh, what is so shocking to me is the, is the level of denial, the level of rejection, the level of how obvious it seems to be, based on what, what they say they worship, you know, God, His Word. Yeah. I just—it's hard for me to grasp how there's such a huge yeah. level of denial of all of this. Yes. You know how what you said—the persecution that you took uh, by uh, the so-called mainstream uh, uh, teachers of the Word of god and it was like you know, what's happened with MacArthur. I mean, in the books that have been written about him being satanic, and on and on and on—it's just amazing.
0: Yeah. Well, firstly, you—you you spoke about how we hear things and we see things, and we have this discontentment in our spirit, and we just understand it's wrong. What we're hearing and seeing is wrong. And that's true because the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 16. And then it says, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Or you, you know all things. Meaning, you know what's true, and when you have this anointing, the Spirit of Christ, in us, when you have this, it bothers you, and you're tormented, and you say it can't be right, and that's good. That's meant to be that way. God meant it to be that way. Okay, then carrying out what to do next, it can be a matter of pride, but we have to check ourselves and make sure that what we're thinking and seeing, we're evaluating it by Scripture. And to the extent that it's matching up to Scripture, then fine. But when it's not, and it contradicts Scripture, and we say it contradicts Scripture, that's not a prideful statement. It's not prideful to say, sir, what you just said contradicts scripture. And let me show you in scripture. Can we sit down and and read together what you said contradicts scripture? That's not pride to say that.
3: But coming at that at that time, when the transition was starting to take place, Lord, did you really? Has this been revealed to me? To that level, or, or, you know, there is where I'm referring to.
0: Yes, okay. Now, at, let me... That time. Yeah. Now, you mentioned uh, the name of John MacArthur a couple of times. Let me comment on yes, him. Yes, please do. He is a dispensationalist, and he is more agreeable, he is more agreeable than the average evangelical to the things I just said.
2: Yes.
0: However, there he was asked a question, and he wrote a statement or article about did... The saints of the Old Testament believe in the death of Christ, and his answer is no. He believes that the prophets they wrote about Christ, but they didn't put their faith in Christ.
5: And how were they saved?
0: They were saved by faith, but not faith in Christ. Faith in God. And And he makes it general. Whatever God promised, whatever God promised. That's What they believed, but See, that, the that, promise that's my
3: understanding up until right now, too, that there was faith in God, and Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all being the you only know, one. Yeah, so trying to tear them apart, you know, I haven't felt the need for that of trying to further understand the salvation
2: of the Old Testament. Yeah, what did it for me was the parenthetical and for uh, the Lord of our righteousness,
0: it's okay. Right there. And that to come, for me, you know to, uh, what we're gonna read so. Yeah, Jeremiah 23, twenty-three six says that um, the Lord our righteousness and this is the name one of the names of Christ, right there in Jeremiah twenty three six. Yeah. <clears throat> Do I need to say anything more? I was just gonna say about this is why
2: You know, like what uh, Dale was saying, uh, has happened to to me as well. You start reading and thinking about these things, and and you think, "Is there? Can all these people be wrong?" (laughs) This doesn't sit right. This because I remember this idea that those in the Old Testament were saved by works or saved by the law, and then I'm thinking about. Adam and his sin, and it's like, how is it possible for them to be saved by the law when I know they have a nature from Adam that's the same, and it, it didn't make sense, but I didn't know what to do with it mm-hmm. until we started studying these things, and then when I met Ish and he started we started going through these passages, then it became very clear, and it's like, okay, now it makes, make, so it's just that it's very important for us to meet together like this. And study these things, and when you hear them taught, and you see the scriptures, then it gives you confidence, and yes. It confirms you, and gives you conviction.
0: Yes. and that's,
2: that happens over time. Happens. So just to, to study it, to be together, to talk about it, find, finding like-minded brothers, and, and doing those things,
4: and then it helps
5: clarify those
4: things. Well, and it yeah. goes to what you did, Jerry. The fund, of, you know, the foundation is where scripture interprets itself. There, we can't argue. And there's so much of it, like, like when you read, you know, Romans 4, what's the argument? Because any argument would then be, with God. we're arguing with Scripture, which is different than the argument with you, or arguing with Ish, or arguing with Don MacArthur, you know, like yeah. whoever, that's a, but when Scripture interprets Scripture, mm-hmm. it's like somebody saying, I believe something different,
3: Scripture is not right not what we're yeah. saying. Yes. The scripture's not right.
0: The now, the, now, the point about, now the point about growth, the point about growth is an important point to make, that we're all growing. Then the key is that we keep hearing the master's voice. No
1: doubt.
0: Because we have the spirit of Christ, and we have Christ as our shepherd. We have to keep growing, because he says in John 10, all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. The sheep did not hear them. Um, they do, 10.5, they do not know the voice of strangers. They do not know the voice of strangers. And then 10.27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. To the extent that we're hearing things and we're conforming it to the. Word of God in, in the Scriptures, the Spirit of Christ and the Word of Christ, go together to lead us on the right path of growth, right. mm-hmm. so we, we not regress. That's what we need to do. Um, can I illustrate, by the way, uh, last week, I, after I came from that one uh, place, I, I went back home and I went to a Bible study on that Saturday evening. And in that Bible study, he was uh, teaching Galatians 3. And the seed question of 3.16, he kind of fumbled and, and jumbled it up in his teaching. Afterwards, he catches me and takes me to the side. The teacher takes me to the side and he says, Ish, I was reading the commentators on this uh, passage, and especially verse 16, they're all over the place and they, contra- <laughs> they contradict each other and I don't know what to make of it. I don't know what to make of it. And, uh, I, and then he uh, mentioned N.T. Wright. He said he was reading N.T. Wright, uh, the new perspective on Paul and I said that anti Wright is a liberal and a heretic um, he shouldn't be reading him there's no point he's just going to make his, his mind smoggy and foggy it's not going to help him so he shouldn't do that um, And so then I said the seed has to be Christ because for one Paul the Apostle said it's Christ so it has to be Christ we can't negotiate on that that's number one so if N.T. writer anybody says the seed isn't Christ, then he's wrong. Now, if he is Christ, then I asked him the question, knowing his background and knowing where he goes to church, I said, did Abraham believe in Christ? And he said, no. I said, let me rephrase it. Um, who was the first one to believe in the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life? Who was the first one? I said, what, did it start on the day of Pentecost? He said, mm, no. Did it start with John the Baptist? Mm, no. He, he said, it starts with David. I said, David? So, 1000 BC in the Psalms, David? Uh, no, no, he said Isaiah first. I'm sorry. He said, Isaiah. Isaiah, okay, 700 BC. Not before Isaiah? Mm, no, in the Psalms. Okay, David, 1000. He said, yes. Not before David? Not Moses? Not Abraham? Not Adam? He said, no, none of those. Not even Abraham? No, not Abraham. Abraham did not believe in Christ. I said, well, in your lesson, you said from John 3 that Abraham was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, according to John 3, unless one is born of, of the Spirit, Abraham was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and then God gave him faith and repentance. You said that was the sequence of events, and the Spirit did that. Yes. But did Abraham know of the Holy Spirit? No. No. That that he did not know of the Holy Spirit. I said, well, you correctly interpreted from John 3 that he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit, even though Genesis doesn't tell us he was regenerated by the Holy Spirit. John 3 tells us that this is the way it works in every period of time. Yes, you're correct that it works that way in every period of time, but why is it that you can't grant that Abraham was consciously aware that he was a sinner and needed to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit especially after his conversion, to understand what actually happened in his conversion.
1: Because
0: right. he used to worship idols. Why, why can't you grant that? Uh, well, the text doesn't say that Abraham knew. That's, what, that's his argument. I said, but the text doesn't say that Abraham was regenerated by the Spirit, and yet you determined that from John 3. So you are inconsistent. You are inconsistent. Uh, then I took, him, I, I took him to John 8, and I said, there it says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Right. No, that doesn't mean he believed in Christ. I said, that's what Christ said it means. <laughs> <laughs> of course. Okay, and then I took him to John 17. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. John seventeen three. I, I opened up the Bible, I read it to make sure I read it aloud, and there was another friend who happily... He came in the middle of it, and he agreed with me. And he said, even though he goes to that brother's same church, okay? So he agreed with me, and I said, And this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Does this verse apply from the day of Pentecost onwards? He said, no. From the time Jesus prayed it in John 17 onwards? He said, no. When does it first apply? He said, once Jesus came into the world because it says, whom you have sent. I said, why can't Jesus be saying that Abraham would know that Jesus would be sent and everybody else knew that he would be sent? Start At least go back as far as John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You're saying it can't be until Jesus was sent and people knew why he was sent. That's really what you mean. But why can't people know why he was sent and that he would be sent before that time? It's in John 2. You took John 3 and applied it to Abraham. Take John 17 and apply it to Abraham. He he was unwilling. Unwilling. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, they have no answers. They, They just keep repeating some vague statements, but they have no answers, and they don't bring up any scriptures. He did not bring up a single scripture. We talked for at least 45 minutes. He did not bring up a single scripture. Mm-hmm. I, I brought up about a hundred scriptures. And, he, and I asked him, what does this mean? Give me an, an interpretation. Please tell me what this means. Tell me what this means. And then he would say something. i said, but that's not what it says. Uh, and then he would say it again and kind of rephrase it. But that's not what it says. He doesn't have an answer. He doesn't have an answer. Yeah. That's the problem. Is that, like you said, it's good for us to have these environments to be able to interact and to figure these things out based on scripture. But people don't do that. That's the problem. They don't do it. Yes. What is the real
3: consequence of the, uh, uh, I gonna label it, the division of, of doctrinal thinking of this exact topic, the wrongful teaching, when, you know, if a person, let's assume somebody that's not saved yet, then accepts Christ and really becomes a full-blown believer and seeking and studying and living for the Lord, what is the consequence of this wrongful teaching today, moving
0: forward? Uh, What are the consequences? I think the book of Galatians answers that. The whole book answers the consequences. For one, chapter 1, he says... Uh, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we, are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. If we subscribe deliberately, intentionally, persistently subscribe, it's not as though you can't be confused uh, or wonder initially, or object initially, but then you you think about it. You have to think about it and listen to the Word of Christ and the Spirit of Christ. You have to listen. And if you do, you will come to the same conclusion. Amen! But if you don't, you keep resisting and kicking and screaming. Then, this is the consequence right here.
3: Are, are you saying that, that the majority of... of the, let, let's just use the seminaries uh, as an example. Of the teaching of wrongful uh, doctrine today... Uh, is, uh, is, is known by the teachers, because you also said that it's done in a lot of ignorance because it's just a repetitive teaching. I, I had a friend uh, a couple, two years ago, that called me, and this is one of the most manly uh, uh, men of God I've ever known. He's a truck driver, and, and he called me, and he was, you know, really kind of displaying a level of anger that I'd never seen before. And he says, you know, I'm really peed off, he says. It is really something to come to a point when you walk in faith and development and knows the word of God to realize that for all these years, you know, by my my teachers, my preachers, my churches, that I've been fed a bunch of lies. So much <laughs> good, so long. Wow. I mean and, and, and so he studies three, four hours a day in the Word of God for like years now. And and so, you know, yes, it is a revelation, it is profound, it's unbelievable. So back to the teachers. You said that a lot of they're ignorant, but what percentage of them do you believe really, in their own heart and soul, know that they're false teachers? That's
0: a big okay. question, I know. Okay, <laughs> some, some of them, um, I think that if we're talking about the teachers, I think they know. I think, I think they know. There might be an exception here or there, but I think that they really know. And because it says here... Only there are some who are disturbing you, and want to distort the gospel of Christ.
1: Right.
0: They want to distort. That means they are deliberate, intentional, conscious. Another one in Galatians, Galatians two two. Um, sorry, 2, 4. For uh, because of the false brethren. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. That whole verse, that whole verse is full of it. It it says, because of the false brethren, secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage, there's several statements there of purpose, intentionality. That they, they are doing it purposely.
3: What counsel do you give people that are, are uh, you know under that leadership and teaching, which as you, know, you already said is ninety eight and a half percent or more of the churches in America? Uh, um, what what counsel do you give people that are under that kind of teaching? Run. Where do they go? Because you, you know it's so few to, right? To go to.
0: Yeah. Well, they need to run, and and if they have to travel an hour or two to go to church, they need to do that. Amen.
5: Mm-hmm. Amen.
0: That's They do need to run. It's very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And why is it very dangerous? Because it's under a curse. And then eventually the life of the people will manifest it, either into uh, licentiousness, sensuality, libertarianism, denial of personal holiness. It will either lead in that direction or it will lead in the direction of legalism, works-based salvation, legalism, traditions of men that undermine the gospel. It will go in one of those directions. So it's very dangerous. And then if we live that way... According to Galatians 5, it's either the deeds of the flesh and we won't inherit the kingdom of God or it's the fruit of the Spirit. Both of these are the deeds of the flesh and this is the fruit of the Spirit. Only the fruit of the Spirit is sticking to the Word. Thank you. Let's have a prayer and then we'll end. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time and for what we've learned. Grant us true faith, And this faith that produces good works to the um, praise of the glory of your grace. In Christ's name, amen. amen.